We pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Dear friends in Christ, our text from Ezekiel chapter 17 sounds awfully strange in our ears. A sprig from a tall cedar, a tender twig planted on mountain heights, the birds of every kind nesting in its branches reminds us of Jesus' parable of the mustard seed in our gospel reading. But how on earth do the trees of the field know anything, let alone God? It's a strange-sounding text. It is actually an epilogue, a summation, a postscript, if you will, to a riddle. Chapter 17, verse 2. Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. The riddle describes a great eagle with huge wings and long pinions and full plumage of various colors. And the eagle plucks a tender twig from a tall cedar of Lebanon, and he takes it to a land of merchants. And then he plants some of its seeds beside abundant waters, and the seed grows into a low vine and sends out shoots and branches. But another eagle, another great eagle comes along, and the vine sends out its roots towards the second eagle. And then a word of judgment. Thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruits so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? The riddle itself, verses 1 to 10, is just that. It's a riddle. It's of no value until God, through Ezekiel, offers an explanation. First, in verses 11 to 18, a historical explanation. The first great eagle is the king of Babylon. This is Nebuchadnezzar. And the twig is Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, who's carried off by Nebuchadnezzar along with Ezekiel and all the pride of Jerusalem in 596 B.C. The seed that the eagle that is planted is Zedekiah the uncle of Jehoiachin, whom Nebuchadnezzar leaves in Jerusalem as a vassal king. And the second eagle is the pharaoh of Egypt. Actually, two pharaohs of Egypt. You can read the story of Zedekiah's rebellion in 2 Kings 26 or Jeremiah 37. But in Ezekiel 17, God prophesies judgment. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. And indeed, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar's army returns to Jerusalem and it breaks down the gates and it throws down the walls and it burns the temple to the ground. And Zedekiah's sons, the princes of Judah, are slaughtered in his sight. The last thing he will ever see for his guys are gouged out. And he goes to Babylon and eventually dies in chains. Verse 18 marks a bit of a transition. The explanation of the riddle shifts from the historical to a theological interpretation. The first great eagle is still Nebuchadnezzar, but listen to verse 19. Thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely it is my oath that he, that Zedekiah, despised, and my covenant that he broke, I will return it upon his head. The covenant may have been written on a Babylonian scroll. The players are, were men, flesh and blood. But behind, or perhaps above the scene, God was in control. 
moving the chess pieces, if you will. God is the unseen director of all of human history. He will use men and women, nations and principalities to achieve his end, his telekos. Zedekiah, Prasmechikos II, the pharaoh, and his successor Hopper can scheme all they want. God holds the reins of history. And how does our text end? I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Now, all of that may be interesting history, but it's ancient history, right? What did the gyrations of kingdoms two and a half millennia ago have to say to our day and our circumstances? Well, remember that I described this text as an epilogue, a postscript. And the context taught us that the riddle describes what will be history for later generations and certainly history for us now. What happens on the surface level of history must not be divorced from history's upper level. God describes what will happen by his hand after the days of Zedekiah. Verse 22, thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of his young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. God, through his prophet, returns to the imagery of that same riddle. But now the human players are stripped away. I, I myself, will take a tender twig. The text is riddled with emphatic personal pronouns. There's no doubt who's acting here. This is Adonai Yahweh, the Lord God. And what is to us the history that this new riddle describes? Well, unlike the former riddle, there's no historical or theological explanation offered. The context, however, the context of the riddle shows us that it's centered around the Davidic kingship. In the near term, the tender twig that it remains is Jehoiachin, who spends the rest of his days in Babylon dining at the king's table. And his grandson, Zerubbabel, becomes the tender twig that's planted in a mountain on the mountain heights of Israel in Jerusalem by Cyrus the Persian. Hear the word of the prophet Haggai. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shelatiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet wing, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. That text is charged with messianic language. My servant, my chosen, a signet ring. But those are only shadows. Hints that God would not forget his promise, that his words would not fail. The promise he made to David in 2 Samuel 7. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your kingdom shall be established forever. And the ultimate, the final interpretation of the riddle is seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the tender twig taken from the lofty top of the cedar. The text is, is really a wonderful messianic prophecy that often gets overlooked. Yet it's part of a fabric that we find in the Old Testament describes the coming one as a twig, a branch, a shoot, a root. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of, Lord, of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for his people. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
It's a text concerning Jesus' incarnation and his exaltation, both ends of his ministry. Or Isaiah 53, part of the fourth serving song, which we associate with and identify as Jesus' passion narrative. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him, verse 2. Or Jeremiah 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. We could read from Zechariah 3 or chapter 6 about the branch. But all of this horticultural language culminates in Jesus' own assertion. John 15. I am the vine, and my Father is the true vine dresser. So the tender twig is about the Davidic kingdom and its culmination in Jesus of Nazareth. But there's another element that we've overlooked. It appears in verse 24. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. It's a theme of the great reversal that we find throughout the Bible. Joseph, what, sold into slavery, becomes the second in Egypt behind the Pharaoh. Gideon is 300 who rout the mighty menacing Midianites with a what? A torch and a trumpet. David and Goliath. Lazarus and the rich man. Yet the point of the riddles in Ezekiel 17 is that God controls both ends, both the tearing down and the building up. And this is where it gets personal. He kills and makes alive. 1 Samuel 2, 6, part of Hannah's prayer. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Job 5. For he wounds, that he, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Hosea 6. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, that he will bind us up. Or as we confess in our catechism, what does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sin and evil desire, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. God is in control of all things. He is the Lord of death and life, and he has promised that death will not have the last word. You see, our text is really about God and his promises. He promised that he would establish an everlasting kingdom, and he did it by killing and making alive. We see it foreshadowed in the destruction of Zedekiah and the return of Zerubbabel in Ezekiel 17. He did it ultimately in the death and resurrection of his son. Jesus conquered sin and death, and from the open tomb declares, You are redeemed. Your death, your eternal death, has been died. And God made you alive, part of that kingdom. In baptism, he's given you his word, a word that cannot be broken. A word we hear again this morning in the blessed absolution, I forgive you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The word incarnate that we will place on our tongues this morning, the very body and blood of the risen and resurrected Lord of heaven and earth. And all of this, we believe, 
because of the word of our text, the promise of our text. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. So today we look forward to this reversal of our fortunes on the last day when we will be raised from the dead. As the text described it, it happened to Israel. It happened to the Word made flesh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And it will happen to us in him who are heirs of Abram's promise, heirs of eternal life. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.